Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show here live on The Voice of Islam. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host uh, for this Monday, Imam Arana Atta, and myself, Talib Man. We're here in our studios in South London. Actually, you know, when I look out, it's it looks looks belied, don't they? Because it's like it looks clear and sunny, but uh, I know it's pretty cold out there. Yeah, I know it's... Um it's been the story for the past week or so. It's been the um, the toughest, I would say, in terms of because the, it's been quite mild, isn't it? I it, think it was okay, it was okay until time. yeah, it was okay until I would say maybe late uh, last year. But um, right. the last ten, I would say, the last week or so, it's yeah. just been um, you know you you can't even uh, you, your your heaters have to be on even at home mm. right now. So it's um, it's pretty, pretty yeah. Bad. So just and it's so. Uh, cold up and down the country that I think there is still a yellow warning from the Met Office regarding weather. Mm. Um, you know, especially up north, uh, snow flurries, uh, more snow up north as well, predicted for later on in the week, around about Wednesday. So just uh, remember, although you might not think it's, you know, you just can't put a jacket on. Mm. Uh, I think you need to really wrap up well if you're going to be... Um, you know, going out for your walks in the countryside. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, this this year I've been okay in terms of not um, falling under the weather, but you know, it's pretty much on the edge now. So let's see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's just keep ourselves yeah. wrapped up. But as as normal uh, on the drive time show, we kind of we we, we delve into. Uh, topics, uh, whether they can be contemporary or secular. Uh, what have we got on the agenda today? Well, Rana? the first half we'll be discussing um, the UK economy um, and economic setbacks uh, mm-hmm. in general. I would Bleak say. like the weather yeah, then. <laughs> the weather, I mean, for some people might really be like, it's, it works for us, so it's, it's, <laughs> this is the kind of weather we like and this yeah. is the kind of economy we like. Um, <laughs> but for others, it's probably, yeah, no, this is not our cup of tea. And then mm-hmm. Uh, in the second half, where we will be discussing, um, you know, it's a, it's it's a global problem, uh, but it's even in a, in a in a more developed country like England, um, the aspect of homelessness mm-hmm. is a is a very serious issue, which we will be um, hopefully discussing and yeah. presenting our views on how to tackle maybe mm-hmm. homelessness. Uh, yeah, because uh, it has been on the surge, on the increase, and yeah, I suppose a lot of or the popular. Uh, thought of or regarding homelessness yeah. is that uh, I mean some of our ex uh, home ministers would think it's a lifestyle choice. Right? Um, yeah, if that's um, what they th- if that's what they think, that's their opinion. Well, but you know, a lot of people who fall into homelessness aren't necessarily. Obviously, it's not a choice. I mean, I I say that tongue in cheek. Yeah. Um, but due to circumstances, family uh, disruption. Uh, Loss of work, right? Yeah. Loss of employment. Uh, these, uh, they're affecting uh, a, a, a larger proportion of the population here in the UK. And we're going to see um, later on in the uh, in the piece that uh, some of the stats are going to reveal that actually there's a there's a growth in youth homelessness as well. But uh, without further ado, we're going to jump into our first topic of the day, which is. You know, the economy and, you know, just seeing what is actually the outlook for 2024. Uh, is it as bleak as we are led to believe um, or is there, you know, are there some uh, little kind of buds and shoots uh, of, I suppose, you know, resurgence of the economy? Now, you know, the actual, the landscape 
or the economic landscape in the United Kingdom uh, does have that, I suppose it is shrouded in that atmosphere of uh, bleakness. Uh, and it does raise concerns for the government itself, you know, the policymakers, businesses, and you know, us as citizens alike. Uh, there's a there's a sense of urgency that you know what are the plans there you know what are are there things happening which will actually give our economy a more resilient look uh, a more um, prosperous look coming into 2024. Um, if we look at uh, what's technically known as a recession. Mm. Uh, now, a recession you know, charts the decline in GDP, the gross domestic product, so the output of a country uh, across an actual six-month period. And, uh, you know, if that is the case, we've dipped, right? Mm. So we are technically in a recession. And if, we, if this is so the case, then it means that the uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's mix of income tax rises and public sector cuts have actually backfired. And I, I remember when he came into power, he said, you know, he had five uh, main priorities. Uh, and, you know, one of those priorities, uh, if if anything, was to get inflation under control. Now, if these things uh, don't come into the mix, you know, it's going to end up leaving the UK worse off in every possible way. Now, we're going to examine what actually uh, or what factors um, contribute to a ailing, uh, an ailing economy. And there's, there are multiple factors. I mean, Ron, if you can take us through a few yeah, of I those. Mean, yeah, what, what leads to uh, failing economies, as, you, as you've just asked, um, it is often a complex interplay of multiple factors, but some common reasons include, um, as you already explained, a recession, which is a period of economic decline typically measured by a decrease in GDP for two consecutive quarters. During a recession, there is a decrease in consumer spending, business investment and overall economic activity. Another reason is inflation. Rapid and uncontrolled inflation erodes the purchasing power of money. When prices rise too quickly, consumers may cut back on spending and businesses may struggle to manage costs leading to economic hardship. Um, one more reason is high debt levels. Mm -hmm. Excessive levels of public or private debt can strain the economy. High debt can lead to reduced government spending, higher interests and a general sense of economic uncertainty and also um, poor, poor monetary and fiscal policies. Mismanagement of monetary and fiscal policies by governments can contribute to economic difficulties. Inappropriate interest rate decisions, excessive taxation or ineffective government spending can exasperate economic challenges. Mm. So, I mean, you know, just just off the top of our heads, so you look what those factors of which the government can actually um, can actually affect or uh, manipulate, right, is monetary or uh, fiscal policy. Now, in terms of monetary policy, you've only got Bank of England, and all they can really effectively do is increase or decrease uh, the bank base rate. Mm. Um, but obviously, we've seen uh, the previous year with base rates uh, historically prior to last year being at zero for such a long period of time, suddenly getting up to, what is it, 5.75%. And that's a huge shock, really, yeah. to everybody's system because if you think about it um you're paying a mortgage and you're on a variable rate 
So your variable rate may be over uh, at, at the beginning, or actually at the beginning. When you, when you got your... Yeah, your, when you got it. Was it zero? Was, or the it's, base it's, it's rate been was ra- zero? It's been, it's been raising, uh, rising yeah. ever since, yeah. So now uh, you might be paying a variable rate in excess of, if it's 5.75%, you know, almost up to about 9%, yeah. 10%. So that's doubling almost, if you think about it, your your monthly payments. Yeah. So that's a huge chunk out of your um, domestic income. Yeah. Let, let's put it that way. And then on top of that, is it all, and this is why we were like saying before, you have these contributory factors. But inflation is such a big uh, factor to, to, to really take away your spending power as as you know as a consumer really if you think about it because on the one hand you're paying more in your mortgage payments but then also we've all seen it if you go to the shops everything's more expensive so there are all these contributory factors a cup, to it. A cup of coffee would cost you about five quid or something yeah i know and you know if you think about it even during covid or okay let's try and cast our minds pre-covid you know 2018 it wasn't that expensive was it it's 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 right now you uh, i would say it's like um you know even with with like raised p- pays to some extent okay because of the uh, the um the current uh, inflation sl- uh, status of of the country it's still you know you you it it doesn't feel like it's enough um uh, considering everything mm. has gone up uh, considerably so um it's 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 a person who would probably be a better judge of how how our economic, for for instance, my own economic um, uh, situation is. My missus, obviously, she keeps a very close eye on what we spend, mm-hmm. uh, especially on groceries, for instance. And she was like, "Well, the last time we went, well, when when it's uh, when when it just felt as if it was too much. Mm-hmm. She's like, it, it seems as if everything is double its usual price. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's when it kind of hit, and then." Um, yeah. Besides that, the uh, you know the, the your fuel u- bills, right? U- utility bills. For utility yeah, bills. it's it's like it's it's it's. So it's not even just a double whammy, exactly. is it, Rana? You're, you're being hit as a consumer, uh, as a citizen in the UK currently on multiple on a, fronts. Literally everything. Yeah. And look, there there is this thing where some people they they do, for instance, some businesses. Okay, they let's say there's a there's a restaurant that's a you know it's a very popular restaurant. Mm. And they don't want to, um, you know, they they don't want to like raise their prices, mm. but they have no choice because they cannot mm. provide you with the stuff. I mean, basically, yeah. because you brought that up, it just hit my mind, right? I don't know if you've heard of uh, Michel Roux, yeah, right? So he's a Michelin star yep. chef, uh, son of the Roux brothers, yep. and they've had uh, a restaurant. Okay, it's a high-end restaurant, right? Yep. Uh, La Gavaroche, yeah, but yeah. it's closing its doors. Yeah. So you would have thought, well, actually, it's not just affecting, right? It's not just affecting, you know, the, the, the bottom. Small, it's yeah. affecting everyone. But actually, to talk about how uh, this economy or how uh, the economy uh, yeah. is being affected, in terms of the NHS, right, we're joined by our first guest of the day, uh, Mark Dalen. Now, Mark leads the, N- uh, the Nuffield Trust's engagement with political uh, stakeholders as head of policy or public affairs, I should say. He's also the Brexit program lead at the Trust, working on the implications of leaving the European Union and of trade agreements for the NHS, life sciences and social care. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Mark. Thanks for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Hello. 
So we're talking about uh, the outlook, right? The outlook for 2024, uh, the economy. And, you know, you know, we've got you here. So we're going to look primarily at the NHS in terms of that, right? So how has the declining economy affected the funding allocated to the NHS and other uh, public health uh, care initiatives? Because, you know, if we're being told by the government that there's less in the pot, uh, for everyone, then that must be affecting the NHS as well. Well, it's difficult to draw, you know, a one-to-one connection because obviously whatever the economy does, the government can still find money for the NHS from mm-hmm. cutting other public services, from raising taxes, from borrowing. And the NHS budget mostly has continued to go up, at least what we would say is in cash terms, so not taking inflation into account. Um, I think, you know... A couple yeah, of it's 160-odd billion, isn't it? Roughly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the largest public service there is, and that's the case in, in most countries. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of places where you do see financial pressure coming through are, firstly, that um, the NHS budget went up a lot during COVID-19, obviously had a lot, of, lot extra to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and ever since then, there's been a real effort to sort of rein the budget back in and bring it back down in line with the direction it was heading in before COVID. Mm-hmm. And that, you know... There's, there's many things going on there to do with the government's rules for spending, decisions on tax, decisions on other budgets. But no doubt that the tough economy plays a role in that. And that's meant that we're in a position where, in repeated years, the NHS just keeps overspending its budget because it's costing it more as people turn up in A&E, turn up at the GP, get referred to hospital doctors for treatment. It's costing it more to treat those people the money it's got and so at the end of each year you tend to have a bit of a scramble around for often unfortunately cutting back on some of those longer term budgets to bail it out a bit. Mm-hmm. The other thing we've seen which I think is quite unfortunate is um, delays to reform of social care. Mm-hmm. Your listeners might remember um, Boris Johnson in particular promising big changes to social care, mm-hmm. um, you know, the way in which you get support um, for looking after you know, maybe older people or people with a, a learning disability mm-hmm. who need support with their activities of daily living. There was meant to be a cap on the amount that anybody would spend on that. And of course, uh, Boris Johnson would go around saying that nobody would have to sell their house to pay for care again. Uh, but that's been delayed. And partly that's because simply the budget wasn't really big enough to both cover that and the fact that we have to go on providing this care day to day. So that's been put back, which unfortunately is contributing to a situation where a lot of people who need that kind of support don't get it. Um, are there shortages in critical healthcare staff, and how is the government addressing these workforce challenges? The picture looks a bit different if you look at different types of healthcare staff. So, GPs are one where we've had uh, a really difficult time of it over the last few years or the last decade. Uh, the number of fully qualified GPs in England has actually been going down, which is quite a big problem when you consider that there are more people. Uh, they're older on average, they're more likely to have multiple illnesses. Mm. Um, and as that sunk down, you've seen a lot of the pressure on general practice that people would be very familiar with in terms of the difficulty in getting an appointment. Mm-hmm. Some other staffing groups, nursing, for example, actually been going up quite quickly, and that's partly because we have um, a very high level of international migration at the moment. The, the NHS has, has managed to recruit a lot of people from different Asian and African countries. Um, so the workforce is actually uh, growing quite fast. Of course, the the issues that that brings are that the budget isn't necessarily there to keep pace, which plays into those financial problems. Mm. Um, and also that for reasons we don't fully understand, 
we don't seem to be able to do as many operations per nurse and per doctor in our hospitals as we did pre-COVID. That's coming back a bit, but some things have clearly changed. Um, and so the waiting time problem is, is still very serious, despite the fact that many key staff groups have been rising. Hmm. I mean, the thing is, Mark, that uh, the I mean, we we're talking about the budget and you know, how much the NHS go overall. And rightly so, it should get a, a larger chunk of the uh, public purse. But, you know, with these increased wages, and we've seen in the news that obviously we've just had uh, another junior doctor's strike. And um, yeah, the narrative there, uh, I think we find in general media is that, you know, they want this pay rise of up to 35%. But, you know, to my understanding, that's actually just um, uh, not a pay rise, but actually to reinstate what they should have been paid prior uh, and to actually have, I think, a remuneration, really, uh, to to basic levels. Because, I mean, you get these bizarre um, comparatives, like you could be a, a barista at you know, at Costa Coffee or something and be earning slightly or pretty much the same as a junior doctor. So my point being that, you know, it's the allocation of resources here. So, you know, the bulk of the NHS budget actually goes to day-to-day running, correct? It's around about 90 94%. So wouldn't it be better that, you know, the, these kind of the wages, the salaries were better uh, managed I mean, there's no doubt that I think the management of the the pay process has not gone well in recent years. Um, And it's quite right that many NHS staff groups, certainly including junior doctors, are getting paid less when you adjust for inflation than they were, you know, 10 10 years years ago. ago. I mean, it all depends on how you do the figures, and and I don't think we put it quite as high as a 35% cut. But yes, definitely some of the, to some extent, the NHS has balanced its budget insofar as it has uh, off the backs of, uh, of its staff's paycheck. I mean, there's no easy solution to this because the vast majority of the NHS budget does already go on wages. Um, and in fact, there's some reason to think that we might be spending too much of it on day-to-day running. Because mm-hmm. if you compare the NHS to other countries, you know, there's some signs, I think, that it's not really spending enough on, on machinery, like uh, scanners. And the buildings are often pretty, pretty ropey compared to what you'd see in European countries where mm-hmm. they'll have wards with one bed in them instead of, you know, or rooms with one bed in them instead of big wards. That yeah, because, I mean, under, well, when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, he was promising us 40 new, 40 new uh, hospitals. And I think, yeah, indeed. And, you and know, we've only had about five, right? Yeah, well, that might be quite generous, actually. You know, progress <laughs> of that's been, been very slow, and a lot of hospitals are in really pretty dire nick mm-hmm. um, with significant implications on where you can put patients, how you can move them around, etc. So, yes, I think the, the staff in real terms, are paid less than they used to be. And that, that doesn't help with a serious problem the NHS has. Yeah, retention. Keeping on the staff, exactly, that they have. Um, but at the same time, it's not super obvious where you you get that money from. I don't think, you know, people would think an easy solution is to reduce the number of staff so you could pay them more, given the pressures on waiting times that we have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, in terms of, you know, the impact that this has on, say, uh, the the more vulnerable sections of the population, such as low-income individuals and those with actual chronic conditions, uh, are they disproportionately affected by, you know, this economic downturn in terms of health care access and outcomes? You know, it's difficult to say, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is that the NHS has already, always, to be honest, had some issues with 
the equality of access to, mm-hmm. to services. So we've always had a problem where people in wealthier areas tend to get more planned appointments than people in poorer areas. And wealthier areas tend to have more GPs than poorer areas, despite the fact that they usually probably need it less. So that, that's, that's, I would say, has never been ideal. Um, it's certainly, you know, as waiting times become more difficult, um, that is a concern for those areas whose access to care was never as good to begin with. Mm-hmm. We have absolutely seen, you know, some quite worrying signs recently. You might have seen the life expectancy figures lately that the health of the population and the more vulnerable among it are not doing well. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are a number of possible contributors to that. You could look at the NHS, but you could also look at the impact of the pandemic um, and issues such as, as housing um, and, and diet. So we sort of, we know that all is not well. Whether or not there's been a big change in that due to what's happened to the NHS specifically is a lot hard to say at this stage. So um, what strategies or policy adjustments are being implemented to adapt to the economic downturn and ensure the resilience of the public healthcare system? I think the uh, a main drive of government policy over the last few years, um, as I said earlier, is it is all about trying to get the number of appointments or operations, etc., per member of staff back up to where it was pre-COVID, essentially so that you could see more patients with the workforce you've got and the budget that you've got. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's been some success in that. We are seeing a recovery in the number of people brought off waiting lists and given treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, where I think there's been less success is in hitting targets for delivering financial savings. So mm-hmm. that's been proving very difficult. You know, obviously, that would very much resolve uh, financial problems to some extent if we could do more with a smaller budget. Um, but it's, you know. There's been a lot of over-optimism, I think, about how quickly that could be done, which is part of the reason that the NHS is in the financial hole it's in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam uh, UK if you want to join in the conversation regarding this. And... Yeah, we we should have really prefaced that interview with speaking a little bit about public health care uh, in the UK. But yeah, as Mark, I think Rana uh, has pointed out with his answers to those questions. You know, currently in the UK, we are experiencing severe shortages. Even you know, if we look at dentists, uh, I mean, dentists are as state subsidised appointments, treatments uh, are become harder to find. Uh, some people are resorting to actually going abroad uh, to have their uh, dental treatments, like Turkey, for instance. Uh, flights include, and yeah, this is the fantastic thing or amazing thing, I suppose. You know, flights included, these trips to dentists are costing them less than it would, uh, than they would have to spend if they'd stayed here right at home and had, you know, those treatments done privately. Uh, I mean, it's made worse knowing that England is notoriously uh, or notorious for having a population with poor dental health. So, you know, how's, you know, you, you're, you're forced. I mean, I know currently, you know, my wife's uh, had a toothache for the past uh, five days, right? And her, she, she needs, she can't get an appointment to get it pulled. No, it's a, it, it, just reading. And that's that, something you would think is a very standard procedure, right? Yeah, no, no. It, it's um, it, you, just reading this. I was going to say that. Look, it's um, you know, it's it's a worrying thing that it, it, anyone who has experienced uh, teeth problems, they 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 pop up suddenly, and um, even you hope that you could avoid it for a bit, but 
it gets to the point where you know there you have no choice but then you know in those situations you realize that um all you know reading the fact that they are so expensive and mm-hmm. you, <laughs> would you go to turkey to get it uh, t- could you preempt that your to- tooth uh, could go bad so how about uh, preempt and uh, make make uh, provisions for the sa- the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 care for it uh, mm-hmm. well well beforehand so um i i guess look there there has to be a solution in in the sense that you know uh, maybe there there needs to be mm-hmm. some sort of uh, policies in terms of dental insurance see, in play i think that's that's the problem because you know uh, the whole idea of say for instance the nhs yeah. right uh which was brought to brought about by you know the pre well i say previous in, in the 70s by the labor administration yeah. right was to provide a healthcare service which was free at point yeah. of service right and currently we still have a very good health service yeah. right uh we don't have to pay to go see the gp yeah. uh your prescriptions are a certain pro- uh, yeah they've been capped um and yes, you know what, there is a problem now because there is increasing waiting lists. Yeah. Uh, one of the points that uh, I don't think Mark ha- actually told us, right, but we know that you know, waiting lists have increased to 7 million mm. currently. So the the problem is that the, you know, the, the NHS is not with the NHS in its intrinsic idea, yeah. right? The problem is the actuality of it, a meaning that it's just something which isn't quite working in this day and age. Mm. Now, whether it's you know, do you still keep on pumping money into a black hole, hoping that it's going to work itself okay. out? Maybe not, right? Um, but you know, when you're talking about uh, government policy, then I don't understand why you know you're paying so much for contract workers to come over instead of settling with the junior doctors that you have got resident with you currently. It's cheaper because uh, um, a consultant who is covering a junior doctor's uh, day because they're striking, they're getting 300 quid. Yeah. It's, it's, it, you've, you've raised a very valid point, I guess. Um, Isn't it better just to solve the problem? Solve I say, the problem okay, internally. We're going yeah. to give you the remuneration and then you don't have the strike to start off with. Mm-hmm. You have a better... I suppose atmosphere at work because look, you've agreed. You know, you, you know, you're happy. Yeah, you, you know, you've made the doctors happy, right? And then you're not having to pay consultant doctors to cover their junior doctor roles. And I'm just talking about doctors, right? Um, nurses. What's happened to the bursaries? Mm. Right? They used to get bursaries which they didn't have to pay back, mm. but now it's like a loan. So, you know, the the NHS itself has been stripped. And so something that you said, which is very pertinent, if I know that I, in the future, need health care, need dental care, maybe I need to make the, the um, forward plan. Provisions. And, yeah, yeah, the provision, and get health insurance. So we're going to be moving from a uh, free from the point of delivery health service to something where we have in or they have in the US yeah, it's, and is that something that we want to go down is that the rabbit hole that the NHS should be going down n- no because it defeats the whole purpose of it but um, it, my, my point came from more of a um, from more of a personal point of view that um, you, you can never okay if I get a, if I get for instance if I get a problem within my organs or, mm-hmm. uh, something's not right with my chest something's yeah. not right in my stomach Okay, I know that. Look, hey, by one way or another, I will get to the A and E, 
and uh, it, through some sort of process, it might take a bit of time, but I am in good care. But the, the, this issue about, you know, uh, it came just specifically from this point of, you know, the teeth. There is no way to, um, you know, let, let's say you have a toothache mm-hmm. and they, they are the most painful. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I've experienced exactly yeah, and the same thing. And what, you can't, you can't who sleep, are you, gonna, you can't yeah, do anything. Yeah. And, you know, you call up and... I was exactly in yeah. that situation. I called up, uh, is it uh, NHS Direct, yeah. right? I said, right, okay, I can give you a list of dentists, which are NHS, yeah. called them. Called them, yeah. no one's got a booking. Exactly. I can't see you, I can't see you. But I'm emergency, yeah. it's killing me, I need it pulled. No, I can't see you. Yeah. So, yeah, what do you do? Do you actually just literally go there yeah. and, and uh, you know, pick it, the, the dentist, you know, the surgery? Right. You don't, And right? they'll charge you a... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not even the charge. There, there are the well, I mean, is, look, right? it, it, it's it, it, not it, even it, the charge yeah. because you're not. You're in such pain. You're willing to, you know, pay for yeah. it just to be pulled out. But the fact of the matter is that there is no. There's not enough spots exactly right, yeah. with NHS uh, doctors or sorry dentists, and that's where we're at. Yeah. I mean, if we just look at some of the stats, right? I mean, you know, in the country currently, we, we you know, spoke briefly about the uh, junior doctor strike. I mean, it ended last Tuesday on January the 9th, or the most, most current one did. Uh, now, that led to more than 110,000 patients in England having care cancelled. Uh, this was the 10th strike in the last 10 months as an increase in pay of, well, I, say, I, I shouldn't say an increase in pay, a pay remuneration of 35% uh, is still disputed. Uh, the health service in England is now uh, or has now had to rearrange more than 1.3 million appointments as a result of industrial action by doctors, nurse and other staff over the last 13 months. I mean, it can't be cheap. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine just even uh, you getting, uh, if you've got the app, yeah. right, sending out those those texts Oh look, you know what? You're not gonna, you know, you, mm-hmm. the the appointment that you were booked in two years ago. Yeah, it's, we're gonna have to put it back another two years. Yeah. So just just that, right? The ramifications of not paying. And I, I'm I'm not saying okay, you always give in, right? Mm-hmm. The employer has to look at okay, we've got such a big budget. I mean, it's not a small budget, 160 odd million. Uh, sorry, billion, 160 billion. But let me put that in context, right? Because, and that's a lot of money. Right, but in context of government revenue, uh, in terms of tax receipts that Her Majesty's revenue and customs received last year was a knee knocker, and what I mean by that, it hit it out of the park. One trillion pounds, one trillion pounds, Hmm. was taken in, right, from the government. That's forty percent of this country's GDP. Mm. So when the government says, well, you know, I haven't got enough money, money to pay. Well that's, not true. well, that's not true. But anyway, to speak more regarding this and more actually regarding maybe uh, some of the more uh, general issues uh, to the outlook of the economy in 2024, we're joined by our next guest of the day, uh, Scott Lucas, who uh, I should say, Professor uh, Scott Lucas, uh, who's a professor of American studies. He's a specialist in the US and British foreign policy. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Professor Lucas. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Assalamualaikum. It's so good to talk to you and to all your listeners. Yeah. So we're talking about the economy in 2024. Is it as bleak as we're led to believe? I mean, what criteria? 
uh, do you think is or is used to prioritize and distribute funds amongst various government programs and services? Well, I think the first thing for me trying to understand this is, is you start with the departments themselves who almost have to bid for their budgets, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes for up to five years in what are called spending reviews. And so you've been talking about the NHS, for example. So the Department of Health would have to say, look, this is what we have planned in terms of day-to-day operating cost. This mm-hmm. is personnel cost. This is planned capital expenditure, say, on hospitals. Uh, the transport ministry would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd have the same thing, for example, uh, in terms of public housing or education. Now, the Treasury oversees all of those requests, uh, all of those you know, bids, as it were, for expenditure, mm-hmm. and then the Treasury, of course, probably with a lot of discussion with various ministers, Uh, And with the cabinet, then we'll come up and advise in terms of what the budget will be on a year-to-year basis. And, of course, we get those two events each year where the chancellor comes out with the red Mm -hmm. box and gives us the the broad lines of Mm -hmm. what's planned. Now, in terms of what you're talking about in terms of the oversight, you know, how is the money being spent? Are we getting value? You know, getting value? Are there significant issues that are being overlooked? Uh, You've got for the overall budget the Office of Budget Responsibility. Mm -hmm. But they tend to say, look, is the government being economically and financially responsible? Is, for example, the spending something which is reasonable given the possibility of inflation? Is it reasonable given the possibility of recession? Uh, Then you would have Parliament's Public Accounts Committee, which would be the one that would really oversee uh, the various departments and how they're spending money and would ask questions about that. And, and sorry, right. uh, sorry, Professor, is that yeah. is that that particular um, committee? Is that cross party? Yes, okay. it's cross party committee, mm-hmm. and so it's not one which is just dominated by the government of the day. It's not partisan. Not partisan. Right now, they have fifty-one, so <laughs> more than fifty, <laughs> more than fifty current inquiries, and those all go all the way from headline issues you could talk about, such as PPE. Uh, what, What's the economic? Well, what's yeah PPE, but what's the economic effects of the proposed U- UK deportation of people to Rwanda? Yeah. Uh, what's uh, how's the cop- cabinet office running? Is it saving money as it is promised to do, or what about the BBC's uh, mm-hmm. current plans? Are they being implemented effectively? So these are a whole range of issues that Parliament, which supposedly say we're going to get our say on whether or not you're being responsible. But, of course, whether or not the government listens to Parliament, as we have seen with, for example, the PPE and other COVID-19 inquiries, mm-hmm. that's a different matter. Right. OK. So ultimately, um, I suppose I'm not I'm putting words in your mouth, Professor, but you know, it's fine to say that, yes, we've made a mistake or even if they don't say we've made a mistake and we've misspent uh, the monies mm. uh, in the budget, then there's no real re- repercussions, to tell the truth. Well, they, you know, they would say, I presume, as politicians, well, the repercussions would come at the ballot box, right? Uh-huh. So, but of course, you know, it's one thing to say that democracy is based upon voting. Uh, democracy is also based upon the day-to-day responsibility of what you do in between every five years mm-hmm. and those elections. And that's where you have, I think, a, you do have a serious issue with the way that the UK has set this up and mm-hmm. has responded. But to give you one example about this, um, you may remember in 2019 that the government made a pledge, you know, we're going to have 40 new hospitals. Yeah, right? I brought that up with our previous guest. 
Oh, yeah, well, I haven't seen those 40 new hospitals. Well, uh, there, there's not 45. I, I actually quoted five, and <laughs> uh, our previous guest, Mark, said, I, I think that's been a bit generous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I think, in fact, there's been one new hospital, mm. if you're really talking about in terms of being delivered. There are mm. others which are supposedly in progress. Parliament's Public Accounts Committee is having an inquiry right now on a new hospital funding. Mm. But do you think that will make any difference to getting us those 40 hospitals? I dare say, given in our current economic status, you're not going to see them. Mm. In fact, let me give you a question, which gets to the nub of what you're just talking about. Real expenditure. So that is the rate of... Uh, expenditure accounting for inflation. Mm -hmm. Real expenditure on the NHS is decreasing, Mm -hmm. not increasing. It's decreasing by 3% Mm -hmm. next year. So when you talk about the pressures that you've been explaining, you know, the waiting times, trying to get reliable, basically, responses, if you have an emergency condition or a day-to-day condition, the money simply is not being devoted to build up the NHS you know, coming out of what has been, of course, to say the least, a demanding time uh, with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Mm. So are there any mechanisms in place uh, to regularly assess and measure the effectiveness of public spending policies? Uh, Again, you would have the Office of of Budget Responsibility that would do this in what we call a macro sense, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, has the government been responsible and effective in terms of spending, which has ensured that we don't have inflationary pressure? Uh, you would have questions of, has it been responsible in terms of generating enough income with its mm-hmm. proposed uh, uh, trade policies or investment policies? And that, of course, would work not hand in hand, but it would work in complementing what the Bank of England says mm-hmm. in that big sense. But what the questions are you're asking about is what really happens in terms of a day-to-day mm-hmm. sense in terms of the way the departments spend their money? Mm-hmm. And as you can see, you know, when you talk about, for example, what happened with HS2, you know, one of the big transport mm-hmm. initiatives, which now effectively has been... Uh, it's been canned mm-hmm. all but I mean, the whole, from what I remember, I mean, you're talking about a decade ago uh, mm-hmm. when, you know, it was first touted, uh, this high-speed link to the north. And that was the whole point. I mean, it's, it's in the name, right? High-speed link to the north. Sure. But then now... You know, you're not getting uh, those branch um, connector uh, connector pop sections of HS2. They've been canned. So what's the point of having that now? Well, you know, the, 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 we could talk a lot. I hope you can bring it back for a separate program on HS2 <laughs> yeah. and how that built up. But I think the question here is when you talk about processes is that, you know, there were, we've known for years there are cost, cost overruns on HS2 mm. and the reasons why they've gone into it. The government had been told for years there had been cost uh, you know, overruns on HS2. Now, a responsible government would have addressed that at the time when these overruns had come up, right? Mm-hmm. But what you know actually happened is we got an all or nothing, mm. which is all of a sudden, oh, no, we're not going to do HS2, along with what was a bit of a deceptive cover, which is we'll spend the money on other transport projects that mm-hmm. will – do the same thing. Well, no, that's not what they're doing. No, they're not. Um, I mean, it's, and, it's 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 the shell. It's that kind of shell or the pea game, right? You're just wondering which which cup the pea is under, unfortunately. Uh, as a final question, Professor, right? I mean, how does the UK's approach to public spending and taxation compare to that of other countries with similar uh, economic and social structures, you know, our comparable um, friends across maybe the ocean? Or the channel? 
Yeah, if you look across the channel in terms of the European countries, I think, uh, you know, and, and of course, Europe's a big continent. There are a lot of differences between countries. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think you could talk about fairly similar systems in terms of that you have the parliamentary systems mm-hmm. that will give input on whether, you know, the parli- uh, governments of the day have been responsible. Uh, in extreme, extreme cases, you could have votes of confidence around uh, a matter of how our department is operating. But there's a big difference between the U.K. and the U.S., because in the UK, the budget, the allocations to departments starts with the executive. Mm-hmm. In the United States, it starts with Congress. Now, particularly at this time, the way the United States is going through its own issues, I wouldn't hold up the congressional system as being the most functional system in the world. But what it means is, is that the responsibility for those departments in terms of funding and oversight actually begins with the House of Representatives and the Senate. Mm. And that makes for a much different dynamic in terms of accountability than the way that it operates over here. Mm, yeah. It's, uh, I suppose, um, on the surface, a lot more accountability uh, in, in, in the U.S. Uh, taxation system and actually how, you know, how you know, the budgets are, are worked out than here. Um, Professor Scott Lucas... Uh, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thanks to you. Thank Peace to you. you and all your listeners. Thank you. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us uh, at Voice of Islam UK. And, you know, when we talk about you know, the economy and some of the things that uh, Professor Lucas is like saying, Rana, you know, it's like a... You know, you 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 know, you're a kid in a candy store, and the kid being, or the my analogy must be a bad analogy, mm-hmm. right? The kid is the government. Mm. I mean, you've got a trillion pounds yeah. to spend. How are you going to spend it? And then it doesn't matter how you're going to spend it, because there's no there's no comeback. Mm. I can misspend it, right? Well, and there's no comeback in this country. Well, the question you've posed is, I, I would think of it more in the sense that, um, as you mentioned, that this this trillion pound was accumulated last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the years before it, uh, they've, you know, it, it keeps going, coming back to COVID, right? So the amount of um, free money uh, that was being dished out. And um, I remember something which... Um, it's not free. It's our taxes. This is the thing. <laughs> no, no. It, yeah. But... Um, it, it wasn't all of a sudden, for instance, if I'm a taxpayer, mm-hmm. um, I don't claim any benefits, right? So um, none of that is ever coming to me, right? None. Of, I, I don't know what, what mm-hmm. free money I'm getting. Um, mm-hmm. It is my money that's being given to them and it's being given, uh, distributed out as mm-hmm. free money to others. That's the way I would see it. Um, but then again, you know, as you said that, okay, one million was... Uh, Accumulated, trillion. maybe I'm. Trillion. Oh, sorry, one trillion. Okay, if one million, oh, that's out. a lot more zeros, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, no. Sorry about that. Uh, one trillion was accumulated, yeah. um, and the previous uh, prime minister's uh, her name just popped out of my head, mm. but she Liz, cle- Truss. Liz Truss. She clearly said that there is no such there is no such thing as free money. Okay, mm. so. That's the way I would see it. It's. Uh, it, I'm amazed you remembered that, rather. No, no, I, 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 I just remember that. She was only her. in power for 44, <laughs> for 44 days. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but she said something in a. She said this in a very, like a very confident and mm-hmm. uh, convincing way, and she was right. Okay, so the way I would say it is that um, you know that free money which was dished out the, uh, the years before had to be recovered somehow. Mm-hmm. So you could say that that one trillion is 
possibly playing uh, playing its role in uh, filling no, up those. I, I, um, I, I think maybe maybe I'm wrong, but maybe yeah, that's the no, way. See, the thing is, you know, we're we're getting <coughs> tax receipts every year. Yeah. Right. The government takes tax receipts every year, but there is a national debt. Mm. Okay. And that national debt, um, it's just it's a very convoluted um, system. Right, because we do have a national debt, and that debt was built up over the years. Say, for instance, the war effort, mm-hmm. you know, to build all the, you know, the planes. You know, we're talking about World War One. We're talking about World War Two, right? Um, so, you know, that was what really put something called the national debt. Mm. And you know, how did how did the government back in the day pay for all this? Well, they issued bonds, mm. and people bought bonds, and they were just like a saving system, effectively, yeah. right? But you could guarantee that your government is not going to go bust. Mm-hmm. So it's not like buying a bond off some guy on the street, right, mm. that you don't know. And then you have an you know a certain rating for your government. Mm-hmm. Uh, say, for instance, I would buy a bond in the UK, maybe in Germany, a US bond compared to maybe Ecuador, mm-hmm. Ecuadorian bonds, yep. right? Because you don't know, maybe they're going to have a coup the next day, mm-hmm. right? Or the next year. So, you know, that's a different discussion, right? Yeah. Uh, I think, in fact, actually, we've got our next guest of yeah. the day. So let's go to our next guest. Aslamakum, peace and blessings be upon you. Uh, we're now joined by our next guest of the day, Kevin Garvey, who is head of member relations and external affairs at the National Housing Federation, an organization which aims to shape national policy and create an environment where housing associations can deliver their social purpose. Uh, Aslamakum, Kevin, thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thanks for having me along. Yeah, we've, I mean, we're just so stacked. Uh, in the show that we haven't even got on to you know, one of the major issues uh, in the UK, which is lack of housing um, and how we're going to actually or how the government is going to address this. I mean, what, in your view, are the key factors uh, you know, contributing to the current crisis in housing in the UK? Well, firstly, crisis is the the right word. We are at a critical uh, point in this country where we've had uh, decades of underfunding Mm -hmm. in housing. We've had decades of the right sort of volume of housing not been uh, built, and in particular, social rented homes. And we uh, we're the trade body for housing association homes who form part of that picture on social rented homes. A massive shortfall, really, in terms of that volume of social rented homes that we need uh, not been built across the country. We estimate we need 90,000 social rented homes to be built each year. Last year, we had just over 8,000 of those homes built. So you can see, actually, we're not building anywhere near the volume mm-hmm. that we need. And that's contributing in part to the housing crisis that we have on our hands today. We've got a golden opportunity looking ahead. We have a general election uh, later this year at some point, either in the spring or in, in the autumn. And ahead of that, we're calling on all parties to commit to a national long-term plan for housing that's properly funded, mm-hmm. that's ambitious, that has measurable goals uh, and build houses in places where people need them. Without that long-term housing plan, this crisis is going to continue. It's going to worsen. It's not something that's happened overnight. As I say, it's decades in the making uh, and the consequence of this is, is is sharp we have an increasing number of children living in overcrowded homes or who are homeless and growing up in poverty and the crux of a housing crisis as well it's not just about units it's not just about bricks and mortar it, it links to all sorts of issues like health outcomes 
poverty, aspiration, economic outcomes for, for children and, and households as a whole. So a really important opportunity for the next government to address this issue. But as I say, we need a strategic look at the issue. We need a long term plan that's cross departmental across government that isn't siloed and is properly funded as well. Mm-hmm. So um, how have the government policies and regulations influenced the housing market and are there policy changes that could address uh, the crisis effectively? Well, absolutely. The, the, the key thing, as I've said, is that we need a joined-up strategic plan that is nationally coordinated uh, across um governments and, and looks at this issue in the round and that's something that's properly uh, funded and as I've said it identifies uh, housing in, in the right areas where there's particularly acute housing need and also a plan that takes into account uh, the sort of infrastructure that we need around around housing. We have had uh, policy uh, along the way, it's not to say that governments haven't intervened and, and tried to address this issue. Unfortunately, in some cases, we've had policy decisions that are short-termist, uh, that piecemeal, and in several cases actually have made the housing crisis much worse. So, for example, policies such as Help to Buy, uh, which focused on increasing home ownership, or we've had uh, policies uh, around social homes such as Right to Buy, um, which has actually worsened and increased uh, the deficit of, of, of social housing. So, we, yes, we, we do need social housing uh, policy and we need housing policy um, across the board, but it needs to be strategic. It can't be piecemeal. It can't be knee-jerk. It needs to be strategic and um, properly thought through, which is why we're, talk, we're, why we're calling for a national uh, long-term uh, plan to tackle the housing crisis. I mean, I think uh, the problem is kevin that we do have this um very short term like four-year view uh in terms of you know government policy or those that who are in government because they are they're just looking you know can we keep on for another four years and then maybe get re-elected for another four years and vice versa and so you know there's a start and stop and that's what really i suppose confuses me with this country that you know massive capital projects for instance housing throughout the country for instance the high-speed rail link should actually be taken out of the hands of the politicians effectively i mean what's your view on that i think what we really need is is something that looks beyond um those four five years you're absolutely right that often these policies and it's the case when it comes to big infrastructure projects and the development of housing at scale is an example of that it needs it needs to be longer term it needs to be properly thought through and i think underpinning that is understanding the economic benefits that you can gain through building housing at scale because we're talking about housing not just in london and our larger cities but in the right sort of towns and areas where there's the most housing uh, need and if you address that issue you actually unleash uh, the economy as well. You unleash supply chains. You unleash a new generation of skills. A really, a really good uh, specific example of that is the green agenda linked to housing. So not just the retrofit and decarbonisation of existing homes, mm-hmm. but also making sure that we build homes that are um, to a, a future um, decarbonised uh, standard. Uh, and actually, that brings a whole range of new um, employment and skills mm. and jobs. Yeah, because it's bringing new industry now. Or it's absolutely, moving, absolutely. moving kind of like your employment uh, from 
you know existing industries which are you know failing maybe and you're you know developing new sectors i mean you know in your opinion yeah uh, i mean we're talking about long term i mean what are the long term sustainable solutions do you believe uh, would actually ultimately help uh, you know alleviate i mean i don't think we're going to eradicate but at least alleviate the housing crisis in the uk well, the, the the key thing really is building is building homes. I mean, the, there's obviously more that we can do um, to address the very sharp end of um, the housing crisis. I mean, you look at the failings around the welfare system. Yeah, you look at the failings around um, the ability to provide temporary accommodation uh, in, in in the right places to the right standards of homeless families. Uh, you can look at funding solutions for uh, local government to help address that need for temporary accommodation. But actually, the crux of the issue is that. We if we don't have enough homes in the right locations for people to live in that are affordable, that look beyond just the ambition of home ownership, which is absolutely right as an ambition, but we need a properly cross-tenure look at this, then you're not going to really get to the heart of, of the yeah. issue. But, it, it, you know, as well as building new homes, we can't ignore existing homes as well. And we need to make sure the existing homes we have are to the right standard, that they are quality, that they are warm, that they are free of issues like damp and mould. And that isn't just the social renter sector by the way we need mm. that for the private renter sector yeah. as well excellent okay kevin it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon thank you very much for joining us on the drive time show thank you very much thank you um 0208 or tweet us at voice of islam uk and just to put some flesh on the bones of the housing issue um, I'm just going to chuck a couple of stats at you. I mean, the number of children living in temporary accommodation will rise from 131,000 to 310,000 by 2045. Now, these are stats provided by the National Housing Federation, so it's not any, mm. you know, uh, we've just picked them out from nowhere. Social housing waiting lists will grow to 1.8 million households. Uh, by 2045, an increase of more than 50%. So 50%, right? Uh, that's 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 an amazing stat, uh, and it's a really unfortunate stat. Yeah, that they are, you know, they're they're on these waiting lists for well, that. It's going to be time. that's going to be your what the the new normal. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, you when you grow up, you would think, okay, if you're not if you're in social housing, that's not. That's that's a what, what is that? Is, is that supposed to be feeling a, a feeling of? Um, Normality. Normality. Uh, well, no, I mean, that, that, not when, not that's in our aspirational time. now, yeah. right, to actually have social housing. Social housing, You're yeah. on a waiting list. No, okay, right, yeah, no. Right? So You're actually on the waiting the list. The aspiration will be to be in the social housing. Oh, exactly, yeah, exactly, right? Okay. Oh, I mean, um, by 2045, 5.7 million households will be paying a third of their income on housing costs. Mm. Uh, demand for homes frequently outstrips supply and the cost of construction has increased significantly. Uh, these factors coupled with the household costs rising uh, across the board mean that homelessness is set to accelerate unless a housing plan is introduced. Uh, the amount of people experiencing homelessness could be more than double, reaching 620,000 by 2045. I mean, yeah. these are, yeah, these, these stats are just very depressing, actually. I mean, we are saying a bleak outlook for 2024, yeah. but you know, looking forward into the future is even bleaker, unfortunately. Mm. No, that's uh, you're absolutely right. And um, the the best thing about this whole discussion today has been the fact that um, you know we, as we've said, I think it stemmed from that point about preempting your your own um, your your own downfall in mm. that sense, right? And what can you do? Uh, is insurance a way of uh, 
of 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 avoiding it. Um, so I guess look, this discussion today has been on the point that look, we we've, we've done our best in providing what could be uh, well, beyond twenty twenty four, and as you've just mentioned, even up to the year two thousand and forty five, which is probably round round the corner. You won't even realise it's uh, yeah, you blink, it's you here, blink. it's here before you know it. So, um, but as 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 you know, we we need to have a view as to how we can, yeah. you know, you're saying preemptive, right? And that's true. Uh, Hazrat Mirza uh, Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmad, uh, the uh, Masih Maud, right? Uh, may Allah be pleased with him, said, uh, re- religions that believe in the hereafter in general and Islam in particular do not view the issue in simple economic terms, but from a religious, moral and economic perspective. Religion does not p- seek a purely economic solution because such a solution might interfere with the moral and religious aspects of life, which would be unacceptable. A non-believer is, of course, free to view economic problems in isolation, but a religious person would not judge an economic system from purely an economic perspective. He would demand an economic system that also respects his moral and religious requirements. The Islamic economic system is based on the principle that money itself has no power to grow on its own. Its capacity to increase or decrease is bound uh, with human capabilities and abilities. Money in the hands of an honest, capable, reliable, hard-working, experienced person is likely to increase, otherwise it will decrease. Therefore, Islam recognizes money as an instrument of the expression of human capabilities and depending on the efficiency, com- competence and integrity of the individual and the institution or corporation can result in positive or negative productivity. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, once asked the person who was dealing in interest whether his money was capable of bearing children, meaning that money will not grow itself. It is such a means that will grow through the bright and progressive human capabilities and uh, decrease if those qualities are fraught and inactive. Well, there's anything else to add to that? Well, the uh, the Messenger of Allah, uh, uh, was he once said, "Each of you is a shepherd, and each of you is responsible for his flock." The Amir, the ruler who is over the people, is a shepherd and responsible for his flock. A man is a shepherd in charge of the inhabitants of his household, and he is responsible for his flock. A woman is a shepherd, shepherdess in charge of her husband's house and children, and she is responsible for them. And a man's uh, slave is a shepherd in charge of his master's property, and he's responsible for it. So each of you is a shepherd, and each of you is responsible for his flock. And I suppose that's really saying that you know it's up to the government to do a better job. Yeah, they better be better, <laughs> better shepherds. The, yeah, better yeah. shepherds. So with that, we go to the uh, news. Please join us after that, where we'll be dealing with homelessness. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Rana Atta. So we dealt in the first hour with um, the outlook for 2024, uh, the economy. Is it so bleak? So we actually, very remiss of us, or myself actually, we did have an Instagram story, a poll. Um, and, you know, we asked, uh, so I'm just going to give you the results of that. What will happen and this is what we asked. What will happen to the UK economy in 2024? So uh, grow. we have three choices, grow, slow, or stay about the same. What were the results, Rana? The, the one third believe it's going to s- slow. Uh, 8% believe it's going to be grow and uh, it's going to grow. And uh, 17% believe it's going to stay about the same. Well, you know, uni- uh, I think unanimously they've they've all 
voted that it's 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 going to stay slow. Yeah, I, I don't know. You said a third, right? Well, sorry, sorry, fourth, <laughs> three three fourths, three fourths. No, I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Three about quarters. Three 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 quarters. Three believe quarters. it's going to be. I was like, yeah, no, no. <laughs> but I'm, uh, yeah, no uh, apologies for that. The, the maths. Yeah. So away. if we go metric, seventy five percent. So that's overwhelmingly from our poll. Think that you know the the, the economy will slow down. But uh, we're going to move on to our next. Uh, topic of the day, which is homelessness, a uh, long-term solution. And funnily enough, something that we touched on yeah. at the end of the first Right hour. at the end of the yeah. first one. So just kick us off. Yeah, so the homelessness in England is a is at a record high and is continuing to rise across the country. Expansive, damp, crumbling homes are making people sick and holding them back. According to Shelter, the cost of living crisis increased the number of homeless people by 14% last year across England alone. Hundreds of refugees are being evicted from their homes and forced into homelessness after being granted the right to live in the UK. Uh, research shows that one in 84 children have been forced into temporary accommodation this winter, including shipping containers and shared rooms. According to the most recent uh, shelter statistics, the housing and homelessness charity that covers the UK Almost 139,000 children are without a home this winter. This is the highest number of records. Shelter wow. revealed. Um, a ho- shelter revealed. Uh, nearly 90% of the teachers who said that they had taught a homeless child also reported that the youngsters were frequently coming to school hungry. Uh, uh, several other teachers also recognised how housing issues have a uh, have a detrimental effect on a child's mental well-being. The Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, uh, in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, "It is not righteousness that you turn your faces to the east or the west, but truly righteous is he who believes in Allah and the Last Day and the angels and the Book and the prophets, and spends his money for love for of Him." on the kindred and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and those who ask for charity and for ransoming the captives and who observes prayer and pays the zakat and those who fulfill their promise when they have made one and the patient in poverty and the patient and and the patient in poverty and uh, afflictions and steadfast in time of war it is these who have provided truthful and it is these who are the god-fearing so, you know, that chapter, uh, and we, we quote that quite a lot, actually, yeah. uh, that particular verse from chapter two. And, you know, it's, it's rightly so, because, mm. you know, homelessness, uh, we are led to believe, uh, and I think I said this at the top of the show, from our uh, former Home Secretary, uh, Suella Braverman, was a, or is a, uh, and I'm sure, still sure she still uh, adheres to this fact, uh, is that uh, homelessness is a lifestyle choice. But uh, we know for sure that it isn't. I mean, mm. we have different types of homelessness. Rough sleeping, this is where uh, it's the most visible, dangerous form of homelessness. The longer someone experiences rough sleeping and more likely to face challenges around trauma, mental health, uh, drug misuse, and obviously their own physical health. Mm. Uh, hidden homelessness, many people face homelessness without appearing visibly on the streets. This includes those living in temporary accommodation, sofa surfing, or staying in overcrowded and insecure housing uh, at risk of homelessness. Some people are more at risk of being pushed into homelessness than others. People in low-paid jobs, for instance, uh, living in poverty and poor quality or insecure housing are more likely to experience homelessness. If 
And in the Holy Quran, in uh, chapter 2, verse 272, it says, If you give alms openly, it is, a well, it is well and good. But if you conceal them and give them to the poor, it is better for you. And he will remove from you many of your sins, and Allah is aware of what you do. Mm. So all you know, these two ca- cha- chapters, the Quran is already telling us, right, you know, that, that there are those who are more needier than ourselves mm. and require our help. And it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, in a blatant, uh, you know, big gesture. Mm. In fact, it's better just to keep it, you know, yeah, uh, undercover and just doing your stuff. But we're joined by our first guest of the day uh, to speak about uh, homelessness. Um, Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you. We're joined by Dan uh, Dumoulin. Uh, so Dan is uh, the Director of Development and External Affairs in DePaul Charity. Uh, peace and blessings be upon you, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Good evening. Great to be here. So we're talking about homelessness. It's a big issue, uh, an increasingly big issue in the UK. Uh, I mean, what's the primary mission, uh, briefly, uh, about well, from your charity, DePaul, in the UK? Yeah, so I work for DePaul UK and... Quite simply, our vision is of a society where everyone across the world has a place to call home and a stake in their community. To work towards that, our mission is to end homelessness and change the lives of those who are affected by it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in terms of the uh, the extent or reach of your charity, yeah, can you provide some stats or insights into the extent of the homelessness in the areas where your charity works? Yeah, sure. So uh, we work in... London, we work in Greater Manchester, uh, and we work in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. I mean, in London, I, I heard you speaking a bit earlier, and you're right saying that you know rough sleeping is the most visible form of yeah. homelessness. Mm. I mean, shockingly, last year, 10,000 people were seen sleeping rough in London. Mm. Uh, that's 21% increase on the year before. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, u- a huge number of people, um, and it's getting worse. And if you think about you know, what it's like to sleep rough you've got there's the physical risks there's the risks mm-hmm. to your health the cold especially at this time of year the danger you know people sleeping rough can be just kicked by passers-by mm-hmm. if they're in a tent the tent can be set on fire it's, it's appalling and i mean the, the discomfort of sleeping on the streets i mean even last to towards sleep. the end of last year sorry to interrupt dan um i think the home secretary or the then home secretary even made it uh yeah, I think passed legislation, wanted to pass legislation to have you know these tents uh, to be removed. I mean, the you know as if people living yeah. on the streets or having to live on the streets didn't have any shelter at all. But you know, you've got police, you've got uh, council workers actually taking away their tents as well. Well, I think uh, any comment that homelessness or rough sleeping is a lifestyle choice is absolutely absurd i've never met anyone sleeping rough or as homeless who's who's there through choice mm-hmm. um and and you're right i mean that there is there are ways off the street um councils charities like to paul uk uh, elected mayors like the mayor of london the mayor of greater manchester we're all doing lots and lots of work to try and get people off the street and out of the other forms of homelessness as well. So mm-hmm. sofa surfing, staying in places that aren't safe. Uh, but sadly, the numbers are just going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And lots of people, especially when it's cold, feel safer in a tent than they do completely exposed to the elements yeah, and all, all the dangers. 
So it, it, it's not a choice. It's, mm. That's just completely mm. ridiculous to say that. Mm. So how do you support individuals experiencing homelessness in regaining stability? Yeah, so there's lots of stuff that we do. So we work directly with people who are homeless, whether they're sleeping rough, whether they're sofa surfing. Um, we also want to prevent people from becoming homeless on the first in the first place. I mean, that's ultimately what we're trying to do because it's better if you know we want to end homelessness. You can't do that whilst the people are still becoming homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, so we provide support for people to get off the street uh, or other dangerous at their places that they're sleeping and into immediately into somewhere safe, somewhere where they're safe, they're warm, they've got a, a bed, they've got access to food. Um, but homelessness is not just about housing. So everyone we work with has got their own progression coach, someone who, you know, at the outset can provide a listening ear a kind face, a smile, a welcome to our services. And we really want to offer, we really want to make sure that people, you know, have this time to get settled in, feel like they're a valued human being again. Uh, and then we can work with them towards, uh, you know, what they need to get to, to stabilize themselves. So, uh, I mean, that can be things around addressing the issues that led to homelessness. So, I mean, lots of people are homeless have fallen out with their family, so mm-hmm. we can support people to rebuild relationships with parents, with spouses, with children. Um, and it also, Paul works with a lot of young people, and young people are incredibly vulnerable, especially if they're on the street or sofa surfing. Mm-hmm. So we make sure that we help keep young people safe from people who can abuse or exploit them. We also make sure people can access uh, the mental health services that they need, sure your listeners know that at the moment trying to access mental health support is incredibly difficult Mm. for anyone let alone if you haven't got a settled place to live so we support our clients to do that Uh, and also people are homeless the average age of death for someone who's homeless is 43 wow uh, which gives you an indication of the 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 impact that i mean it's almost that's that's almost like 50 percent of your life expectancy if you were uh, a normal i say normal um, you know, healthy, if you ha- a healthy yeah. person, right? Currently, yeah, it's absolutely that's, it's it's appalling, appalling that in this day and age, in a country as wealthy as ours, that mm-hmm. this is happening. I mean, we've already had at least two people who've died sleeping rough uh, this winter just from mm-hmm. the cold. This from the cold. Sorry, yeah, car- no, no, carry on. Um, so I was just going to say, you know, it's it's really important. It's incredibly dehumanising to mm-hmm. sleep rough. Um, Lots of people, maybe they're a bit scared of people sleeping rough or they just don't want to confront the fact that there's someone with, with nowhere to go. Mm. So people they can, you know, people who are homeless or rough sleeping can feel almost dehumanized. Like mm. People don't make eye contact with them. People would rather they just didn't exist and they pick up on that. Mm. So a really important thing we do is providing a really warm welcome, making people feel like they are valued. I provide a listening ear, you know, we, we mm. just acts of kindness, give someone a cup of tea. Mm. But then there is a lot more that we do as well because we don't want people to be homeless in the first place. We don't want people to stay without settled accommodation. It's, you know, everything we do is about getting people a, a longer term, a settled mm. place to live. Back on the everyone, ladder, every, into society, well, everyone, basically. Isn't yeah, it, really? I mean, everyone should look forward to having a, at least somewhere to live, right? Mm. Yeah, we, true. That's, that's what we... That's well, what it's, we a, it's a basic necessity with. for human beings, isn't it? It's one of those things, you know, shelter. Yeah. Uh, and we all know that. Yeah. I mean, it's been a it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon, Dan. Um, you know, uh, you, you have 
both our prayers and all our prayers you know that uh, for the work that you're doing for the homelessness on on our streets thank you very much for joining us this afternoon uh, thank you if i could just quickly say that um Obviously, we're doing what we can at DePaul UK, but we need the government to do more. Yeah. So true. last year, 136,000 young people were homeless in this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're asking people to sign a petition to get the government to implement a plan to mm-hmm. end youth homelessness. So if, if people want to get involved, uh, if they could search for Plan for the 13K online, mm-hmm. and there'll be lots of ways for people to get involved. Plan for the 13K? Plan for the 13K, that's okay. it. The 136K, sorry. Okay. 136K. Okay, we'll do that. We'll, we'll, we'll carry on. Thank you very much for joining us this Brilliant. afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thanks. Great, thank you. 0208 687 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And, um, yeah, we, we, we said about the, uh, you know, the, the types of homelessness, right? Yeah. Um, th- there are reasons for homelessness. And I think something that uh, Dan was like, saying, that you... You see people who are living on the streets or having to live on the streets and your natural or the natural, Question. I suppose, uh, feeling is to yeah. avoid them, right? Yeah, is to avoid them um, uh, because they, they have they're like the margins of society mm. and to think bad things of them. But actually, the, the reasons for homelessness include things like poverty, uh, systemic inequality and discrimination, yeah. uh, incomes that are failing uh, to keep up with rapidly rising rents and the cost of living. Uh, all those social issues put immense pressure on people uh, that can push people into homelessness. It's not a choice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, life events can also be a source of considerable strain. Uh, this could be a job loss, uh, domestic abuse at home, maybe uh, relationship breakdowns, mm. even yeah, physical and mental health uh, conditions and substance misuse uh, can also be uh, both a cause or a result of housing insecurity and homelessness. Uh, the pressures of privately renting and eviction from a private uh, rented home is leading is another leading cause of homelessness in uh, England. We all need safe, a decent home, uh, but unfair evictions, rapidly rising rents, and short uh, short term rental contracts make it hard for us uh, to keep our homes. Mm. Without a stable, affordable home or a welfare system that supports us all uh, through these tough times, the additional or the additional sudden pressure of an unexpected uh, life event can pile up and this pressure alongside the strain of these high rents low wages and the rising cost of living can force you into homelessness i mean you know I, the thing is you know we have this underbelly of low uh, wage society now mm. right and actually it sounds like you know we are we are a developed I think of the UK as being, you know, a developed country, a, you know, a supposedly first world country, not third world, yeah. right? But in third world countries, it is quite no. It is the norm mm. to work, maybe two, definitely, yeah, definitely two, if not three jobs during a day, mm. and to have a very subsistence lifestyle, right? But the first and foremost thing is to provide shelter for yourself and your you know your family and i think that's where you know the, the problem here is that perception it's just like well actually we're a yeah, developed country how mm. you know how comes we've got this this problem mm. no and um i i remember once uh, 
I asked a friend. I was like, uh, you know, he he's it is a subject that he usually specializes in himself and. Um, I've always thought that um homelessness you know you know this question about how homelessness is, a, is it seems to be a, a lifestyle choice um and I was saying that tongue in cheek right it, it is no, not no, a lifestyle choice I mean choice. Th- this this thing about um obviously not you didn't say yeah. it but uh you know questioning this right mm. so um that's what I kind of like w- tried to work out I was it, the the point that I wanted to work out is that if you do not have shelter you sh- living in this first world country you should be provided with shelter if you for instance go to your local council and say well yeah, yeah I need uh, I need shelter they will provide you with shelter so why do people still um prefer to sleep or is it is it because they prefer to sleep in the streets mm. um what he kind of explained to me was that um the the reason why they are they have no choice but to be it, it, once again it is down to not having a choice yeah the reason why they have no choice is because they've um I think they've what what he said was uh, that it was due to messing it up with the government in terms of uh, benefit claims okay mm-hmm. and they can't reclaim once again so um you know that that for me was something that kind of, that, that was a sort of new angle that uh, he you know and maybe you would probably have a mm. uh, oh, better no, better, I mean, better understanding the, of this the, 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 in this country we have a, a welfare system yep. right so even if you're out of work you can claim so it used to be called unemployment benefit, yeah. but now I suppose it's called uh, universal, the universal credit, yeah. right? And I'm not sure because I've never been on it, mm. whether it's means tested. So you understand what means tested is that they literally say, right, okay, where do you live? Yeah. Uh, if you're living with your parents or you're living with family, mm. that means that you're not paying rent, right? Yeah. So maybe then, therefore, your amount of universal credit is not going to be as big as, as someone who's living yeah. in private rented accommodation. What do you have a dependence? Mm. Okay, it's all this, and there's been a huge outcry uh, as to how the government or the Department of Works and Pensions, right, who I believe mm. are in charge of uh, the universal credit, have worked this out because it's a complex thing, yeah. right? And so, you know, if you are from the more uh, underprivileged side of uh, the population, mm. right? It's a very complex thing to understand how you can claim these benefits. Yeah. So, you know, to you and I, okay, we can most probably do a week, right, without having to go do shopping. Mm. You know, you'll eat your larder stuff, right? But can you imagine if you are on subsistence level living anyway already, right? Because universal credit isn't going to give you uh, I, I don't think the ability to be going out having meals left, right and centre, mm. right? Then if you were to miss one week's payment, then that's going to have a huge impact upon yourself and if you are yeah. also with a family. But to speak more about this, we're, we're joined by our next guest of the afternoon, uh, Gary Lemon. Now, Gary is a Director of Strategic Engagement at Trussell Trust. The uh, Trussell Trust is an anti-poverty charity and community of food banks providing practical support to people who cannot afford the essentials and campaigning for a future where none of us needs to use emergency food to get by. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Gary. Thank you for joining us. Hello, on the good evening. Show. Hello. That's <laughs> okay, so uh, we're talking about homelessness. Uh, I mean, tell us uh, a little bit about your work at Trussell Trust and what are, are your, your primary mission? Or what is your so primary the, mission, I should say? 
Well, it's a little bit about it. So, so the Trust of Trust runs the largest network of food banks in the UK, runs out of about 1,200 physical centres uh, right across uh, Northern Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales. And, um, yeah, over the past sort of five or six years, our mission has changed and evolved. We kind of started off um, wanting to be there as kind of compassionate organisation to help people when they don't have enough uh, to be able to afford food. Uh, but now our mission is uh, that we want to take responsibility to end for our part in ending the need for food banks. We don't mm-hmm. think that anybody in a modern uh, uh, nation such as the UK should need emergency charity food. So that's what our mission is now. But Gary, I mean, isn't it an indictment of life in the UK currently, right? That unfortunately we have more food banks than we do have McDonald's outlets. Yeah, I do. I think that it points to um, uh, really big systemic issues that haven't been solved, that have sometimes been made worse by policy decisions. And this is the this is the outcome. So in the last year that we've got figures for, we distributed 3 million emergency food parcels. Yeah. That's uh, hundreds of thousands of families and households right across the UK. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, like I say, is an indictment because, you know, we uh, do have or did have, uh, you know, quite a big welfare net and i think you know it's something that uh, myself and rana were just discussing before you came on air as to you know some of the reasons why there is homelessness mm. um i mean what what are the challenges that you face as a charity and how do you ad- adapt to the changing circumstances uh for this increase in demand because you know you're a charity at the end of the day uh i'm not quite sure as to your the origins of your funding or whether you do get some funding from the government but you know with this increase uh, yeah i mean you three million meals to provide in a year is a fan you know it's an amazing amount yes i mean there's a lot to unpack there in terms of the challenges we're facing um and why we're facing them your your previous guests who were talking about homelessness are absolutely right mm. so you know, since 2010, we've had a lot of quite radical uh, policies brought in uh, around the welfare system, you know, cuts, caps and freezes. So you've got people on low incomes, the amount of money they've got coming in has been shrinking on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got the cost of living crisis. I'm mm-hmm. sure all of your listeners will have been pinched to one degree or another by the, yeah, you know, the increase in the price of, of essentials, you know, mm-hmm. not just food, heating, lighting, etc. Um, and so we've seen this big, big increase in the number of people who are referred to our food banks. And it causes massive challenges for, you know, what are um, small voluntary organisations on the ground. And it's it, they're honestly at breaking point mm-hmm. right now. Um, you know, just as one example, the um, in the past, we used to rely on um, food donations from the public. And they would cover um, all of the food that we uh, needed to give out. But um, every month, month on month recently, food banks are reporting to us that they're having to spend more and more money buying food themselves in order to get that out to the people that need it. So the system really, really is breaking mm-hmm. now. Um, and, and just to your question, we don't take any uh, government funding centrally. We rely on the amazing generosity of the UK public. But that can only go so far in these in these circumstances. Mm. So do you engage in advocacy work to address the root cause of food poverty? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, as I said at, at the beginning of the interview, our strategy is that we want to take responsibility for our part in ending the need for food banks. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's been my privilege to, to visit lots of food banks and the people who run them and speak to them. And I think, you know, there are only so many 
families and people and individuals who come through your doors literally unable to afford food before you want to start asking questions about why is this happening mm-hmm. and i i think that, you know we as the largest food bank network have a responsibility to gather data gather information uh, and to share that with government and to talk about which policies are hurting people the most um mm. And, so and what do you, the, and what do you think, Gary? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're 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 one, if not the the largest uh, food bank trust out there. You know, what do you think then, as a as a charity, is uh, in terms of government policy the most damaging uh, that there is that they're actually doing at the moment? Well, I mean, there, there are quite a few, and I think rather than kind of <laughs> okay. trying to point out one or the other, I think our kind of our main policy priority at the moment is something that we call the essentials guarantee. And mm-hmm. um, so it was interesting. Uh, I know you were talking about universal credit uh, yep. just before I came on, and um, one of the things that we want um, to see is put into law that um, the basic rate of universal credit should be enough for people to be able to afford the barest of essentials. Yeah. And that is no longer the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that we're calling on government to, to do. Once you uplift that level so that people can afford literally rent, food, and, and the basics like clothing, etc., then that would alleviate a lot of the problems that we're seeing at the moment. I mean, just to, uh, I mean, it's, it's an aside, but is universal credit uh, still means tested then? Because uh, in my mind, say, for instance, you were in social housing uh, provided by mm. the council, then that's a set amount of rent. But if you were in private housing, then obviously that's set by your landlord, the level of rent. So the, the, those levels could be quite you know, dramatic in terms of variance. So then, you know, someone who's living in private accommodation, their universal credit should, in theory, be higher uh, than that of someone in social uh, social housing. So universal credit, once you kind of get under the hood, can be quite complicated. Yeah. There's, there's, there's one part of it uh, which, um, uh, like people listening might remember, is like local housing allowance, which yeah. is part of the old housing benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is set at um, a certain level uh, depending, well, it used to depend on the, the level of rent in your area, but this is one of these areas of, of, of welfare that has been capped and frozen over and over again. So um, there is, um, you know, one of the potential positives of the universal credit is that it looks at your circumstances and it should kind of adapt to it. So, you know, if you get some work, you don't instantly lose all of your benefits. It's kind of tapered that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the the important thing about it that isn't working at the moment is just the kind of the basic rate which everybody gets and, mm. it, and it's different depending on like your household makeup etc mm-hmm. um that is far too low because it it was cut when universal credit was first brought in and then it was frozen after that and that's the kind of the foundation that we need to look at first mm. and then um, you know, as you rightly point out, you can look at yeah. Because like if, if your components within universal credit have not, uh, say, even um, been aligned to inflation, hmm. right? Then hmm. you're just getting less and less and less. And whilst, yeah. say, for instance, I mean, I know within the private sector, um, you know, rental uh, incomes have increased, right? So yeah. you know, the the rate of rents uh, has increased. So if you're paying more for where you're living uh, and then you're not getting 
you know the the bare minimum to cover just that rent i mean it's ridiculous yeah. that i say it's ridiculous but it is i think myself and rana will i say unfortunately it's the norm now mm. that uh, in your in terms of disposable income whether it's through uh, your salary or universal credit but a third of yeah. that is taken up by rent yeah and that's the other huge policy failure in the uk which is again it's one of these things which affects 99 percent of us is uh, a lack of house building, particularly mm. things like social homes and uh, affordable homes. Um, it has a knock-on effect from people like right down to the bottom of the income scale to, mm. you know, increasingly like wealthier middle-class people now are, are just giving up on things like being able to um, afford a home that they can mm. buy because their rents are so high. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, the, these are kind of the two biggies for me, really, are kind of the sort of the, the standard level of universal credit on the one hand and just, you know, sort our terrible kind of house building yeah and, the supply and, side and, of it really the supply side exactly mm. yes um, it all needs to work together yeah exactly okay gary thank you very much it's been a pleasure uh having you on the show today thank you for joining us on the drive time show thanks for having us thank you have a good day you too. 0208 or tweet us at voice of islam uk um in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says that a believer must take care of the poor and should feed the hungry. Allah the Almighty says that a person should be willing to make personal sacrifices for the sake of others. Allah the Almighty says that a person should avoid all forms of arrogance and ill-thinking of others. Allah the Almighty says that a person must always hold firm to the truth and save himself from all forms of falsehood. So, you know, that extract from the holy quran just tells us you know mm. that you know this humanity at the end of the day and that you know if we pass someone um and, and I, just as an aside right i remember i used to like live in shepherd's bush mm. and there was always this um homeless guy on the corner of my road and uh i would always pass him uh, every morning we'd like say hello uh and i'd give him Instead of actually giving him money, right, because the chances are, because it's just a bit further down, was a methadone clinic, right? Is that Acton or Shepherd's Bush? Uh, Shepherd's Bush. (laughs) (laughs) Not far off. But anyway, yeah, down Goldhawk Road. Um, So there's a rehab. uh, And so you had a lot of homelessness Mm. around there. But instead of, uh, and and, yeah, kind of like, in the morning I'd give him like a quid. Right, just to get a cup of tea or something. But that was his his place, Mm. right, on that corner of our road. And then every couple of days, right, when I finish work, coming home, I don't know if people are, it's not there anymore, right? It, was, it used to be called Harris's Cafe Rest. Mm. So it was a, just one of these cafes. Yep. Been there since the 70s. Uh, and just bog standard, you know, all day breakfast or whatever. And I'd take him over there whilst myself having a cup of tea, get him just a hot meal. Mm. And that's the thing, you know, and this is actually before, although, you know, kind of converted to Islam mm. but it just felt that you know that this guy um, and he was you know I, I think thinking back I mean I was in my 30s he was most probably in his 50s but most probably looked older than he was because he's out on the streets right mm. um, that he was so thankful yeah yeah that just getting a hot meal yeah. inside him right, right exactly. you, you know you and you felt the warmth from yeah. it yeah and this actually just you know, it just goes back to something that uh, Dan was like saying, that being out on the streets is, you know, the homelessness, those people 
feel almost dehumanized. No, it's 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 one hundred percent. You know, you, you've 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 made me think about um, one thing which I've always tried my uh, personal best to do is look if you don't necessarily ca- carry cash um, to give out, for instance, but mm. um, there's loads of times where you get. The, I I think it's more of an God gives you this opportunity to yeah. to serve um, humanity, right? And whenever that opportunity arises, where, for instance, if someone is hungry, I, there's been times when I'm buying maybe a uh, maybe a coffee, um, and there would be so they may be pulling a fast one on you, but uh, they will be like, "Oh, could you please buy me a coffee?" Mm. But maybe because they don't have the money for for the coffee, so um, it's happened a few times. Not just coffee, even even food, for instance. Um, I've never ever felt as if, oh man, this part, this person's pulling. If it's food or mm. drink, you know, even, I wouldn't actually, even think twice. I, I had uh, <laughs> so this is another like. Well, what is a person going to do with food that they've yeah, they've somehow? But scan- even, yeah, exactly. even still, though, runner, right? Yeah. If your intent is pure, i.e., and I remember this, I was in Pakistan mm. and uh, in Lahore. So you know, you there, you've got loads of street kids. Yeah. They're coming at you. 24-7, right? You're in traffic, they'll come up to you and they're, they're, they're begging. Mm. And I would give money and uh, I remember the auntie we were staying with, I said, no, don't do that, mm. right? You're only encouraging them. So I said, but, and then I had another another uh, uncle who said, look, don't listen to auntie. Mm. <laughs> right? It's like, like fine, what, what is, what is no, the value of it exactly? The, the, yeah. the, the, the thing was, or the theme was, he said, look, don't, don't worry about it. But you don't, because whatever you give them, mm. It's out of your hands what they do with it, right? True. But God would see the intent in your heart was to give charity. Was to give yeah, right? to do the right thing. Uh, to do the right thing. So never feel that you know you shouldn't be giving mm. to you know the more needy so- in society, needs, yeah. right? Because you know, Allah has given to you yeah. the ability to give them exactly, and you must spend that's that your of what Allah gives you. That's why I, I always see that as the you know. For, let's say you 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 buy someone a hot meal as you've and this person genuinely prays for the best of you mm. you know you you don't even realize that all the good things that could happen to you in the future um in your life maybe because of that person's prayers mm. so th- that's how i have always seen it uh, mm. doing good for someone in a time of need is is always a pro- is always seen as an opportunity from god provided to you mm-hmm. and uh, you know always asking people to pray for you is is the reason why you could be saved from so many calamities yeah. in in the future of your life? Uh, yeah. that, that, well, that's, that's what we believe. Yeah, as exactly. Well, we're joined by our next guest of the day, Reverend Carol Bostridge. Now, Reverend Bostridge uh, is a retired Baptist minister uh, who now volunteers with Lewisham Food Bank. From 2014 20 to 2021, Carol was the project manager of Lewisham Food Bank, a role she fulfilled whilst also serving the London Baptist Association as a regional minister. Carol looks forward to the day when people have sufficient money and resources, as we all do, actually, Carol. Uh, So food banks are no longer needed. However, whilst the need is there, Carol works within a dedicated team at Lewisham Food Bank to provide food parcels, advice, support and dignity to all those who are referred to uh, to us for help. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Carol, or Reverend Carol, I should say. Um, uh, welcome um, to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. I'm very happy you call me Carol, but thank you for your respectful greeting. It's lovely. Can, to can be I with just you. ask as a question, Reverend? Are, you know, although you you are you still practice, you're a retired Baptist minister. Do you always keep the the Reverend then? 
even in yes, retirement. Yes, I, yes, I keep the reverend, um, and I continue to um, support people in training, um, speak and preach when invited to at local church congregations, but mm-hmm. I'm no longer uh, receiving a salary for the oh, okay. So it's, 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 it's almost an honorary title still, Reverend. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so well, I, I'm on a more serious note, We're, we've been talking about homelessness, right? Uh, I mean, how severe is the current shortage of food uh, for people in low income, including you know the homeless uh, population, especially you, know, you were talking about Lewisham in your locality? Uh, it, it's a really tough time. And, you know, people coming to the food bank, some of them are. Homeowners are renting, a lot of them temporary accommodation, sofa surfing and a whole load of street homelessness. Um, Too many people coming to us. Our overall thing, we've probably seen 25% more people 2023 to 2022. You know, about 25,000 people helped in a year. It's too many. It Mm. is. It's a difficult time for people. Money isn't stretching. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And housing particularly is a real difficulty. Rent's going up and not enough houses for people. I mean, and with this increase in, I mean, you know, this is, it's almost a necessity, isn't it, really, uh, Reverend? That, you know, you're not going to turn your backs on them. But obviously there has, uh, there's a stretch on even your resources, yeah? I mean, how have you, um, you know, uh, as a food bank been able or are you able to respond to these uh, increases in demand? Um, yeah, at the moment we are, and it's because um, people of all faiths and none have been generous to Lewisham Food Bank mm-hmm. and those generosities. Sometimes it's supermarkets. A lot of time it's individuals who are giving, groups of people, faith groups, whatever, who donate money, donate food, so that we are able to meet this increased need. And also we've had to increase our numbers of volunteers, both who sought and prepared donations of food parcels and those who would meet and greet people who are coming to collect the parcel. I I had a look, we probably are now, uh, in addition to food donations, we're spending 10, 12,000 pounds a month um, in making sure we have sufficient food because we don't just want to give people, you know, tin of soup and a bag of pasta. We want to provide decent food mm. and food that meets people's needs. You know, in your context, we'll make sure we have halal mm-hmm. food available for those who need it. Mm-hmm. So, in addition to providing food, what other forms of assistance or support does the food bank offer to individuals and families in need? So, first thing we do is make sure if you came along to our centre, we want you to feel welcomed. A lot of people feel ashamed mm-hmm. that they, it's come to this. So, so we're practical things and making sure it's a warm space with a hot drink and maybe some a little snack to eat so you're not starving as you come in. But as well as coming in, we'll make sure we're listening to you. And then we've got debt advisors, people from Citizens Advice, people who can advise on, you know, your benefits, who can help you with job searches, people who can help you. There are schemes where you can get some money to top up, like your gas and electricity meters. We work in the Bar Revolution with lots of other charities. So together, you can see if you can help some people to get out of this crisis situation. Mm. Um, But as much as anything as well, offer people 
a bit of love and dignity uh, mm. as they come through the doors each day. We've got five centres, so Monday to Friday, two hours, somewhere in Lewisham, you mm. can get a food parcel from us. I mean, I don't know if you know that the, there's a, a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, that he actually said that, you know, the, the most, one of the basic forms of charity is to give someone a salam. So to, to say hello to someone. Um, and I think we were talking uh, earlier on uh, with a previous guest who said that, you know, that people forget how dehumanized people who are uh, experiencing homelessness feel. And it's just that simple greeting, a smile, uh, and just the you know how are you doing. Uh, just it, it's 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 more than in some in some respects it's more than money can buy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, if you've ever been on the wrong end of a, you know, you're trying to phone up this department and you're in on a waiting list, you know, mm. and that ridiculous music and all of that. <laughs> the elevator music, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that that we've got time to listen mm-hmm. and we will offer if appropriate we'll offer a prayer if that is yeah. what people would like you mm-hmm. know in my wider role within Lucia, i have worked with other faith communities with um some of the imams as and rabbis and church leaders so that we're together we can offer as you say greet people smile at people mm-hmm. welcome people i think that is brilliant i would uh, affirm mm. that saying you just shared with me mm-hmm. so reverend how do volunteers contribute to the operations of the lewisham food bank i mean how, how can you know people local uh, to your or well, local to lewisham help out so uh, we won't count we've probably got over 200 regular volunteers mm-hmm. now some of those it's a shift sorting food donations at the warehouse some of those it's greeting people in the centres sometimes it's collecting you know you may see in a shop there's a donation point for the food bank we've got people collecting that we've got van drivers um and we're always looking uh for new volunteers you just go on the lewisham food bank website just google lewisham food bank and you'll find there you can volunteer and we will accept you know whatever your skill set we'll try and work with you um so that um, we have sufficient people to make sure uh, the community are helped until mm-hmm. that day, hopefully, when we don't need these food banks. Mm. But, I mean, do you, do you feel, okay, I mean, what do you think, right, if you had a message to, say, you know, the big brother, uh, the government, <laughs> right, what, what do you think? Because, uh, I mean, I think uh, one of our previous guests said, look, you know, and I think all the charities that, uh, whether it be a food bank or, you know, who are engaged with homelessness in this country, um, seem to have the same uh, mission statement, right? It's not just a case of dealing uh, in the short term. Of course, you know you do need to deal with that need, right? You know, you're hungry, you feed, you feed someone. Yeah. But you know, this is like a, you know, uh, what's the word? It's like an elastoplast, right? Uh, yeah. You know, it's a band aid. It's not gonna, it's not gonna, it's not gonna solve the problem. I mean, what do you, you know, if you've got a message to the government and what policy? Uh, would you say would go to long-term eradication uh, of homelessness in this country? I think it would help to have enough places for people to live. We're we're short of Mm. just physically places for people to live. You then need to make sure that rents are affordable. So that may mean that we need more social housing or housing associations 
or mm-hmm. varieties of housing. There needs to be enough places. Then we need to invest in those support workers who can help get people off the street mm-hmm. into a home. You know, for some people, their homelessness is a financial thing or a mental health thing or a substance abuse thing mm-hmm. or just that their rent was too high. But having good quality support workers who are properly paid and resourced so that those people can be helped and then continue the support once people are in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this just more generally, you know, making sure if we are going to give universal credit or, or whatever support to people, that it actually matches the cost of living. Mm-hmm. We, we've getting people come to us who've got jobs, but they're just, the money doesn't stretch. Mm. I mean, I mean, and that's the the thing, isn't it, Reverend, that, you know, we're all, yeah, human beings have a certain amount of pride, right? Mm. And if you've been working, uh, you know, for the majority of your life, but it's because of the current, I suppose, perfect storm of economic factors, right? Uh, The increased inflation, increased cost of living crisis, right? Um, and then, you know, maybe you are a low income earner, you know, you're on low salary, that you're forced out of work then. And in fact, you're, you know, it doesn't, you know, people want to actually be proactive, right? Want to earn. And I I, I personally think, yeah, you yeah, uh, have that dignity of, look, I can go out, I can work, I can provide for myself, I can provide for my family. And that gives us you know who we are an identity right but to have that taken away it's you know i i I totally agree you need that support network to to understand that yeah yeah and i think uh, it, it is a complicated thing there are you know a variety of reasons why people are in difficulty and a variety of things but it it needs the government to engage it probably needs both political parties to talk to each other mm. so that we don't end up with policies flip-flopping as mm. things change. Well, I mean, I, I think, think other- you know, you, you yeah. need to have something as long-term as that. Say, for instance, you know, infrastructure within this country, whether it be, uh, you know, the high-speed link, right, uh, or the supposed high-speed link. But ultimately, uh, housing, house-building in this country, mm. I mean, it's, it's not going to, you know... Uh, last for four years it has to be a longer term um thought out policy and you know to have and and therefore be taken out of politics in a sense yeah or partisan politics yep, yep yeah I'm, I'm absolutely with you because these things are going to take more than you know the term of a parliament to mm. sort but it can be done you know i watch certainly in the borough of lewisham varieties of people working together mm-hmm. So that you can offer this range of support and dignity and help, and and for me the joy is when I meet somebody who is comes in with a donation and says three years ago I was in trouble, wow. you helped me out with some food parcels and some mm-hmm. advice. Now life is better. I want to donate. Yeah, give back. To the folk. Yep, yeah, and we have volunteers as well. We'll have volunteers who are um, themselves still. Mm. sorting themselves out or trying to get help mm. um, and sometimes volunteering then means you're more able to get a good mm. CV and a job so mm. yeah, I'm, I am hopeful about this so mm. like yourselves I'm a person of prayer um, and yeah you know 
I'm, so I'm not without hope. Mm. But, I mean, I think oh, just just you saying that you know you have volunteers, and we, we've spoken to uh, uh, you know previous guests who like say we've had um, people who come back and donate, and who were themselves in you know in need of help previously, and I think that shows you. Um, regardless of what faith you you profess, uh, whether it be Muslim, Christian, uh, Judaism, whichever faith, that humanity at its best looks after itself. Yeah, I, and what I see in food bank probably is humanity at its worst and humanity mm. at its best. Mm-hmm. All, you know, all in the morning. Yeah, it's the sharp end of the stick. Anyway. It is. Reverend uh, Carol uh, Bostridge, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Um, thank you for you know giving us giving us a, a, a look into Lewisham Food Bank. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, and thank you for showing an interest in in our work. Bless thank you. you. Thank you very much. Okay, have a good afternoon or evening, thank I should you. say. Oh yes, evening. All right, bye for now. <laughs> 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, I mean, we should just briefly, oh, I say briefly, um, because like we were saying with all our guests, Rana, yeah, it's, yes, there's an impending need, right, mm. to help homelessness, yep. you know, because they're hungry, they're coming off the yep. streets, they're cold, right? So, you know, give them uh, warmth, uh, shelter, food. But that's not addressing the root cause of the problem, is it? Exactly, because it's just, um, it's, 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 yes, it's a, a good temporary uh, sense of, uh, sense of feeling of assurance for a temp, for it, let's say if I, if, if it's us that's experiencing it. Mm. Um, but then that, that anxiety of what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, yeah, where's my it, next meal coming yeah, from, right? Yeah, it's, it's going to remain. Um, but I guess, look, the, the, the charities or the people we have spoken to, they, they understand that. And uh, they are, uh, you know, as, as uh, um, Carol was just mentioning, Reverend Carol was just mentioning, that they have advisors um, at their, you know, they have debt advisors. They have uh, people who can explain, help with uh, career advice. For such people, um, and I would, I would, I wouldn't say. Look, not everyone is uh, capable of uh, finding their their way out of a of a dark tunnel. But I would, I would say, look, there has to be some sort of effort of actually striving towards that path as well, uh, where they they could, um, you know, find the solution. Mm-hmm. You know, you know they, when, when we grow up, or generally what we try to uh, inculcate in our children. Is that the need of uh, of doing hard work? Because mm-hmm. um, if you are abe- able to do it, um, if you are able to put that effort in, then you are capable of uh, finding a way out of your, uh, or you you're best equipped to find a way out of any yeah, problem solving. Yeah, right. So so that's what we uh, you have to have that spirit um, mm. to 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 actually come. But out then of you know, okay, I I totally agree with you, Rana. Yeah. But also, you know, there are some circumstances, as, as we've uh, illustrated, uh, that make people mm. homelessness or suffer from homelessness. It's yeah, not because it's like they don't in, have for exactly, the, ability, the ability to come out uh, of it. Or yeah. that, yeah, I want to work, yeah. but because of circumstance, right? Yeah. You know, maybe my mortgage payments have got, you know, I've just been, you know, made yeah. redundant, right? Not through any fault of my own. The company's yeah. closed. 
I've not got no job. So then, you know, you have that, those things. Of course, things. yeah, no, nothing is, uh, nothing is guaranteed. But in, in terms of long-term uh, solutions for homelessness, yeah, um, we've addressed, or we're look, yeah, you'd look at affordable housing, you know, increasing the supply of affordable housing to ensure that everyone has access to safe and stable housing. Yeah. Uh, implement housing first programs, which prioritize getting individuals into that stable housing uh, and to address other issues such as if it's, for instance, substance abuse or mental health issues. Supportive services provide support services such as mental health counselling, substance abuse treatment and job training Mm. to address the root causes of homelessness. Collaborate with local organisations and non-profits to uh, offer a range of services to meet the diverse needs of homelessness, uh, homeless individuals and families. Mm. Also, prevention programmes. Uh, develop programs to prevent homelessness, such as rent assistance, eviction prevention, and job placement services. Uh, community engagement. I mean, it's very, very important. Yeah, involve the community in the development and implementation implementation of homelessness solutions to build understanding and support. Because you know what, it isn't a lifestyle change, mm. uh, choice, right? I mean, I think you know we've got that out. You know, in this one hour, that it is not. <coughs> A lifestyle choice. Education and employment opportunities. Invest in education and job training programs to employ empower individuals experiencing uh, homelessness to gain employment and achieve financial stability. Uh, work with local businesses to create job opportunities for homeless homeless individuals, possibly through job placement initiatives. Um, I mean, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, um, coming to the end of the program. Yeah, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu says it is better for uh, one of you to take his rope, bring a load of firewood, and on his back and sell it. God thereby, God thereby pre- preserving his self-respect, than that he should beg from people whether they give him anything or refuse him. So mm. look, this uh, this is a very um, as I was I was mentioning earlier on as well that the need to. Uh, you, you you can become uh, you know for instance we can prevent our own uh, issues but as you uh, rightly pointed out as well that look there are some circumstances mm. which which are not within the power and look there's another incident of has Umar the second caliph of Islam has been you know he's has been preserved in history and indeed there are many other such incidents uh, once he saw an old Muslim who was begging he asked him why he was doing so he replied uh, what can I do? Umar has imposed the jizya, a tax imposed upon the non-Muslim citizens of a kind of tax. The Muslims and non-Muslims all were paying taxes. Uh, the old man said, I cannot work. I am old and there uh, and there is no exemption from the tax. Upon hearing this, Hazrat Umar uh, immediately instructed the relevant department that no tax was to be taken from this man, but rather the upkeep of all such persons was to be born of the treasury. Uh, this was the standard of justice of that era, despite the lack of resources. In spite of being a non-Muslim, uh, he was given his due rights, and in this way, has Umar fulfilled the requirements of justice. And this is what caused peace to be established in the country. So, um, I think on a more gov- governmental level, th- this is a very good uh, mm-hmm. example of how governments could, um, you know, they could, they could actually meet the demands of what mm-hmm. is required. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, just to, to echo that, in the words of the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, Hazrat Mirza Masra Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, he said that a lack of fairness is what precipitated the global financial crash. Mm. And 
and the growing disparity between the rich and the poor during the past few years. I say this given that whilst developed and richer nations may have chosen to invest in poorer countries, they have prioritised their own vested interest above facilitating the development of those local countries. Uh, rather than exploitation and greed, and developed the nation and the developed nations ought to have championed the rights of the weaker nations and sought their advancement. They ought to have sincerely helped the people of those poor nations stand upon their own two feet with dignity and honour. And with that, that brings us to the end of the show, uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. Thank you to my co-host uh, Rana Atta Saab. Uh, thank you to our producers uh, for uh, both segments, who were Fayal Nasir and Azka Hina. That was uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show.